If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have faster horses. A quote attributed to Henry Ford, which he may or may not have ever really said. It's that spirit of innovation in the status quo world of horse racing that led a lady named Robin Malatino to come up with a unique way to market her new stallion, War Dancer. I'm psyched to be selected as America's most eligible stud. I mean, really excited. I mean, really excited. Can a social media campaign really affect whether owners would breed their mares to this stallion? Plus, what to make of the thoroughbred drug trial where a witness said that everyone's cheating? It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit bobbing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It's pretty clear nowadays that thoroughbred racing is somewhat in retrenchment. That's not my opinion, that's a fact, since the number of babies foaled each year has dropped for the last decade from the start of the Great Recession. In 2008, over 32,000 babies hit the ground. In each of the past two years, though, under 21,000, about a one-third drop in 10 years. Not only that, the economics are very top-heavy. As you might imagine, of all the stallions that stand or stood in North America, some are deceased, though their offspring continue to run, the top 24 stallions by earnings are based in Kentucky. Those sires, of course, are in the most demand. If you take all stallions based in Kentucky, they account for over half of all mares bred in the U.S. in 2016. In 2000, that number was under 35%. That means less demand for sires outside Kentucky. So what if you're someone like Robin Malatino, whose Sugar Plum Farm is a strong gallop away from Saratoga Racecourse in upstate New York? Robin Malatino has a stallion named War Dancer, a son of leading sire Warfront. His career ended last year with six wins and 30 career starts, including two graded stakes wins. War Dancer is in third, and on the inside, Charming Kitten tries to get through. Charming Kitten, Redwood Kitten, still right there. The outside, War Dancer has the best stride late. War Dancer to the front, Jack Milton arrives on the scene with a late thrust of energy in the far outside. A driving finish, a photo finish, a three-way photo, War Dancer. Yet it's been hard to sort through the clutter to get some attention for a horse not based in Kentucky, even one with a good track record. So Robin Malatino has tried something a little unique in the world of thoroughbred marketing. After watching The Bachelor, it has been a dream of mine to be America's most eligible stud. I'm so ready to find the best 100 mares to breed to this year. It was David Ogilvy, founder of the renowned Ogilvy & Mather Marketing and Public Relations Agency, who said, The best ideas come as jokes. Make your thinking as funny as possible. Let's dive a little deeper into this concept as we welcome in Robin Malatino of Sugar Plum Farm, who joins us here in person here on In The Gate. When you purchased War Dancer for your farm, what did you think or know about the difficulty of breaking through the stallion clutter? So we didn't exactly purchase him for the farm. We bought him in the yearling sale here in Saratoga in 
I want to say, so he's a seven-year-old, so we bought him in 2012. And Kenny McPeak actually bought him for us. Actually, Kenny McPeak actually bought him for himself and didn't have any owners. And we knew Kenny, and Kenny said, I bought this horse. I think he's going to be awesome. Do you guys want a piece? So we ended up taking a majority piece, and then some of our other friends took the other pieces. So we actually bought him as a yearling, and then we raced him. And uh, after his racing career, that's when we decided to stand him stud. When did you realize it was going to be difficult for a stallion, even one with a good record, who's not based in Kentucky, to get attention? That's a great point that you bring up. So when we first stood him, I thought, this is going to be easy, right? He won over a million dollars. He's one of the top war fronts in the world. He's number six in the world. And I thought, okay, they're going to line up in New York because he'll be the best stallion in New York. Everyone's going to line up. This is going to be easy. We should close his book by October. Well, nobody lined up. <laughs> the New York program doesn't work like that. So uh, I realized, uh-oh, you know, we've got to, we've got to come up with another plan. And... Uh, to be honest with you, failure was not an option. Once we realized we committed to this, we said we got to figure it out. So one of the things we did to figure it out is we said we've got to go outside of New York because we wanted quality, not quantity. Quantity is easy. We wanted quality. The better the book he has, the better the book that we build, the more strategic in the early days, the better the chances of his offspring you know, doing well at the track. So how did you come up with the idea for this campaign as a way to drum up business? So then the whole idea was, okay, number one, we got to brand them. So we, I, got, I started making calls to a bunch of people, and someone introduced me to the Grand Slam girls who do all the work for the Breeders' Cup, the social media for the Breeders' Cup. So I said, listen, I want to brand this horse. I want him to be a household name. What do we have to do? And we kind of talked about the idea of creating a show, a parody of The Bachelor. And we had all watched The Bachelor, and we thought we'd do a spin on that. So that was the original idea. But then... Over, over a certain period of time, we realized he was getting a following on Facebook, and he, and he, like a fan base. And then we said, now what we need to do is we need to find a way to bring these really great mares from out of state in. So we created the War Dancer Breeding with the Stars program. And that's where we pay for their shipping to come into New York, and we pay for a 90-day board, and then they, um, uh, they end up, they can fall in New York, or they can fall back in whatever state they came from, and we got, but you had to qualify for the program. So we got much, much better mares. So he ended up breeding, I, I know we said the number is like 50 stakes performing, stakes producing, I think it's probably closer to 70. Is that common to no. pay for 90 days of boarding and such? To my knowledge, nobody's ever done that. Brand new concept. I mean, what were your thoughts on the financials? You obviously have a pretty deep background in financials. How did you work the numbers to come up with that? So again, it's about building the first three years, the strategic book. And we said that in order to do this, now they're paying the stud fee. So there's no discount on the stud fee. You know, when we first got into the New York program, people said, oh, you know, sometimes they'll give the stud fee away, away for free. So my feeling in life is, what's something worth when you pay nothing for it? Nothing. So I wasn't going to go down that path. So we had had some success. We own Saratoga Water, and uh, it's a commodity, right? It's water in a bottle. And uh, we used to compete with Poland Springs. And one day I was um, in a meeting at the uh, New York uh, Helmsley Hotel, and the uh, food and beverage buyer was looking at the Poland Springs and looking at Saratoga water, and he said, and we were $2 more a case. And he said, you know, it's just water. I'm not going to pay $2 more a case. So 
we came back and we regrouped and we put it in the blue bottle. The next time I made the presentation, we were $4 a case more, and he said, I'm going with Saratoga water. And that's when I realized packaging. Packaging is so important, and that's basically what we're doing with this horse. We're taking a commodity business, because if you look at the stallion directory, it's like a phone book. And they all look the same. They all have this confirmation photo, and they all look the same. And I said, we've got to package this horse, we've got to brand him, make him a household name, and then create a program to bring in the absolute best that we can bring in from other states. Now, I know you're working with social media experts. Do you yourself have a background in marketing, advertising, or such? No. I'm, I'm a pretty creative person, but I'm, I'm a pretty good business person, so I focus on the goal. The goal is to achieve the objective, and whatever it takes to achieve the objective, you're going to do it. I mean, we did that with Saratoga Water. One of my idols, so to speak, is Jeff Bezos. Uh, I believe in customer service. I believe you do things for the customer that they didn't even comprehend, that goes so far beyond what their expectations are, and I believe that comes back to you. I have to say one thing, though. When I ran Saratoga Water, I was the CEO of Saratoga Water, we didn't have social media in those days. We had traditional media. And now that I've learned about social media, oh, my God, the reach in social media for the dollar spent, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And I have to say, I'm a huge fan of social media. But there's also, with social media, a huge clutter through which you have to get because there's just so much of it, and so much of it is drivel. So what is the strategy to cut through that? Well, I would say the strategy is just to be unique and different and fresh and have fun. And, um, you know, a handful of people will... Look, when we put Saratoga in the blue bottle, I got five hate notes. People said, oh, I can't believe you took the traditional Saratoga bottle and you changed it. But you know what? Our sales are up 10 times from what they were at that time. And I think the same thing's going to happen in this industry. I think, first of all, he's gorgeous. Second of all, he comes from probably one of the best stallions in, in the world right now, Warfront. Okay, so he's well-bred. He, he's, as I said, number six in the world. So he's got all the ingredients that he needs. We keep doing what we're doing. I think we break through the clutter, and I think we build a big fan base. Now, social media, I imagine, would be part of a business model. So what about other media, traditional media, television, radio, print, etc.? What thought have you given to those? Whatever thought I gave to those a year ago, I'm giving less thought to right now. I, I, I hope I don't offend anybody, but um, I got to tell you, I don't think you can compete with social media when it comes to bang for your buck. I know that, uh, and we're talking with Robin Malatino of Sugar Plum Farm, who's breeding Ward Dancer, his first year of his, as a stallion. I know you've been involved in a couple of unrelated businesses that you've mentioned. I mean, in terms of branding... In this business, where they're not so accepting of change, how have you managed that? That's a good question, too. So a lot of people think in a box, right? Not only don't I think in the box, I don't even see a box. So we're just going to approach this from a whole different standpoint, and we're going to have some fun, and we're going to do the best that we can do and build his book as strategically as possible. So... I don't know if you know the numbers, but in New York, they say, you know, your first year, maybe you're lucky if you get to 50 or 60 mares. He actually bred to and has 103 in full. Our book at one point was 115, but somebody dropped out or this and that. And, you know, we did it the hard way. Onesies and twosies and onesies and twosies. And um, next year, the goal is 125. So his, his father only bred to 86 his first year. His father stood for 12.5 and bred to 86 his first year. So there's no reason that he can't do the same thing and he'll breed to more. 
What about the goal of landing that really well-known mayor? Warfront had Zenyatta, and that really put him on the map when Team Zenyatta decided Warfront's our guy. How much is that a part of your strategy? Unfortunately, there's nothing I could do about that until they start running. So we need to start. I mean, he bred some really nice mares. Uh, one of the mares he bred to has the two-year-old of the year in Louisiana. One of the mares that he bred to is a half-sister to the um, mare of the year in Canada, in Ontario. So we have a lot of those kind of mares in our mix. But as far as him, him breeding to somebody of that stature, he'd have to prove himself in the track. So we're about three years away. I have to eliminate one of my sweet mares and send her back to pasture. I'm not looking forward to making that decision. As a veteran businesswoman, you know that most businesses are copycat businesses. When somebody finds something under the hood, as race car people would say, everybody starts doing it. So if people see this ad campaign and it becomes successful, let's say, how do you stay a step ahead of that game? Well, that's another good question. You have a lot of good questions today. I would say, how do we stay? You know, we are, first, I don't sleep a lot. I mean, these, the team will tell you that we are constantly, constantly changing. I mean, last year we thought we would just do a blog. This year we're doing a video series. I mean, we are going to have a complete YouTube video series, eight episodes, all animals talking. It's going to be like Babe. I mean, it's going to be phenomenal. We have goats and we have dogs and we have all kinds of characters in the movie. I don't know where this is going to take us. I have no idea. You know, maybe he becomes a, a, a movie star. Maybe he becomes a social media star and he goes to one of those YouTube conventions. But we don't know where this is going to take us. But trust me, we are constantly moving and thinking. Well, I know my son's 90% of his online watching are videos that fall very much in line with what that is. So, Robin Malatino, thank, thank you so much. For thank you. Appreciate it. What to make of the thoroughbred drug trial where a witness said that everyone's cheating? Straight ahead up in the gate. Welcome back to In the Gate. In June, a trainer at Penn National Racecourse in Pennsylvania named Murray Rojas, who is female, by the way, had her license revoked for directing her veterinarians to give her horses medication on the days they raced. Other than the diuretic Lasix, no other race day medication is permitted in the United States. Rojas was convicted of 14 felony counts of misbranding prescription drugs as well as conspiracy. She's been permanently barred from Penn National, according to the Pollock Report website. What was particularly interesting during the Murray Rojas trial was when another trainer at Penn National, Stephanie Beattie, said under oath that she routinely did what Rojas was convicted of doing, using the same vets to give her horses medication on race days. Beattie said, and this is a quote, almost everybody did, 95 to 98 percent. It was a known practice. We wanted a win, and they weren't testing for those drugs at the time. Wow. Now, Beattie was under suspicion by the FBI as well, the Pollock Report said. She agreed to cooperate with authorities and added that she has stopped cheating. So what to make of all this in the big picture? For that, we welcome into In the Gate for the first time, Matt Hegarty, whose specialty with the Daily Racing Forum is covering off-the-track issues. What were your first thoughts as you saw the Murray Rojas trial unfold? 
Well, I think my first thought was that you were a little surprised that Rojas decided to, that she was going to go to trial on this. A number of veterinarians and a number of trainers had already accepted guilty pleas for basically the same charges that she was she was facing. Those guys, uh, you know, obviously their racing careers are over. Uh, it was obvious going into this trial that she wasn't going to emerge unscathed no matter what happened. Uh, so I think there was a lot of disbelief that she would actually go to this point to fight these charges. Now, at the same time, what she was accused of doing and what everyone else was accused of doing was kind of considered routine back there, as, as Stephanie Beattie's testimony indicated. And to a lot of horsemen, what was happening was a bending of the rules. It wasn't a breaking of the rules. How do you figure that? Well, because... It's technically illegal to to administer anything but Lasix uh, to a horse on race day. Uh, But a lot of horsemen do what they call a pre-race, which is a vitamin, uh, and it's not an injection, but they use uh, basically a a syringe to inject it into the mouth so the horse swallows it. So it'll be a concoction of uh, vitamins, maybe an anti-bleeding medication that probably doesn't do anything. But then there were also, in this case, some some horsemen injecting uh, estrogen, and some various other substances into the horses. So this was considered, um, and it's considered at a lot of small tracks, kind of routine. They're not powerful drugs. People think that they give them just a little bit of edge, and the only problem is once you know that one guy or girl is doing it, every other trainer is going to try to get away with it. Well, that's the thing. How much validity do you put in what Stephanie Beattie said about 95 to 98% of them are doing? Yeah, I mean, it's hard It's hard to, to, to characterize whether or not um, that was entirely truthful. Uh, she was testifying on the basis cooperating with investigators, and she was not, there were no charges brought against her, unlike these other trainers and veterinarians uh, that were caught up in this in- investigation on the backstretch over the course of several years. So at that point, she is saying, well, everyone was doing it, which gives her, which gives her a way of saying that even I was doing it, and so was she. So I would say, though, that most people back there were probably doing something something similar to what she was doing, whether or not it was just getting a vitamin B12 shot and not marking it down or backdating the, the veterinary records because it is technically illegal, or doing something you know more dangerous such as administering a mild painkiller uh, that could hide a horse's soreness, which actually can be a very dangerous thing to a horse and a jockey. Do you think the level of cheating is dependent upon the size of the track, in other words, Penn National is a smaller track than the ones on the New York circuit, do you think that makes a difference? I think because the stakes are lower on a small circuit and maybe the pressure is higher, you know what I mean? Because you have to you have to win races to, to just keep going. That probably there's there's more incentive to, to bend the rules than there are on the big tracks. Uh, if you are somebody racing at Saratoga, uh, you have purses that are enormous. You can pay your bills. Uh, you know if you can win, you know three or four here or there. At the smaller tracks, you've got to win consistently, very consistently. Uh, in a lot of cases, these trainers also own shares of the horses or own the horses outright, uh, so they have a lot on the line. Uh, at the bigger tracks. If you bend the rules at the bigger tracks, you have a lot to lose because they're going to send you down to the smaller track. And it's a lot more comfortable up here than it is on a, on a minor circuit. Matt Haggerty of the Daily Racing Forum with us here on In the Gate. I'm afraid of what your answer is going to be here, but what do you think will be the thoroughbred racing industry's response to these revelations? 
I don't think that they were in any way revelatory. You know, these smaller tracks sometimes have a culture on the backside that you, you know, you do what everyone else is doing to win. You know, I had one horseman tell me 20 years ago, and I always remember it, and he called it the blue balloon theory, that if somebody went out and tied a blue balloon to their horse and that horse won a race, the next day you'd see 98 horses with blue balloons tied to their tails. The cultures in uh, on the backside, especially on the smaller tracks, because of the pressure we talked about, they're under consistent pressure to win, and they don't want anyone else making them look like a fool. And a lot of times you have three or four veterinarians serving the entire backstretch. If they're doing one thing for one guy, they're going to do it for somebody else. All right, I'm going to blast that theory right out the window because Kendall Hansen had the two-year-old champion and he painted his horse's tail blue, and <laughs> nobody else did it after right, that. Right, right. So yeah. there your theory's right out the window. Well, did he he painted a blue for, before the bluegrass, which he won, right? Was that right? Was it before the I bluegrass? I don't know if I don't, I don't want to say something. Because I thought the steward said that they, he had to wash it out, if you remember. He did have to yeah, wash it yeah, out. Yeah, it seemed like too much trouble. So Another interesting and somewhat related story has emerged recently, courtesy of veteran writer and talk show host Ron Flatter who writes for Brent Musburger's Vegas Stats and Information Network, VSIN. This one is about expanded out-of-competition drug testing of horses who have either qualified or are likely to run in the Breeders' Cup. And the article says that testing is starting in August, starting now, both here in the U.S. and overseas, and will continue right through the Breeders' Cup in early November, and that this added testing is in response to Masochistic, the Breeders' Cup sprint runner-up whose post-race test showed a trace level of an anabolic steroid and masochistic was disqualified and he and his trainer ron ellis cannot participate in this year's breeders cup what do you make of all this added testing well um i'm not sure if it's accurate that there's added testing the out of competition testing program for the breeders cup has been in place uh for quite some time i think going back at least five or six years so they've been pulling samples from any any horse uh that is uh considered to be on a path to the breeders cup on a random basis for for that long. Um, I think what that article was referring to is that the Breeders' Cup ha- is now coordinating the testing instead of the host location. So it used to be the case that uh, if, you're, if the Breeders' Cup is going to be in California, as it is this year at Del Mar, that the California Horse Racing Board would conduct all that and coordinate it and be the clearinghouse for everything, whereas now I believe, according to that article, that the Breeders' Cup is now coordinating all of that. But yeah, the out-of-competition testing pro- program has been in place for quite some time. Those samples can get pulled as early as June, sometimes even in May, and it is growing a little more robust, and that's just because the, the especially at the higher higher end of the game, uh, at the larger racetracks, uh, you see more and more out-of-competition testing, especially in the more aggressive jurisdictions such as uh, California, Kentucky, uh, and New York. Do you think this heightened awareness due to masochistic is going to wear off, or do you think this will become the standard? Oh, no, this will be the standard. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, we haven't seen, all, all we've seen is out-of-competition testing programs growing. And in, in, so I, I can't imagine the racing industry, especially when you look at the, uh, the other professional sports leagues and amateur athletics that's, uh, that's you know, governed through, say, the NCAA or the uh, Olympic Committee, uh, everyone is going to more out-of-competition testing. It's considered the best way to look for these new designer drugs. It's considered the best way to keep participants in every sport on their toes uh, to keep them from from being incentivized to cheat so uh, no I don't think you're going to see any any kind of erosion in support for out of competition testing our thanks to Matt Hegarty and to Robin Malatino 
At first glance, news reports from Illinois and Arizona portending thoroughbred racing's ultimate doom will make you ask whether the boys cried wolf one too many times or whether there's cause for hope amidst the gloom. Illinois claims it can't compete with other states around it whose race purses use casino money as fuel. In the short term, Illinois is right, but long term, banking on casinos will expose racetrack officials as mere fools. Purse money in Arizona comes not from casinos at all, but purely from the dollars people bet. So if there isn't money to sustain the industry there, that's the clearest indicator we've seen yet that the business is reshaping. And yes, it would be a shame if these deeply rooted regions lost the sport. But a smaller, concentrated industry would do much good. A smaller scale might clear up some of its warts. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching "In the Gate Podcast." You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to "In the Gate" in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app, and you can follow me on Twitter at B Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In the Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.